Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Russia's brutal and illegal war on Ukraine is now in its second year, and statements from President Biden in Kiev and Warsaw and by Vladimir Putin uh, in Moscow make clear that it will grind on for much longer, driving global instability and interest rate rises. Uh, This as China, India, Turkey, and others continue robust trade with Russia, minimizing the impact of international uh, international sanctions uh, on the perpetrator of this war that has left uh, hundreds of thousands uh, dead, uh, injured, and many millions uh, displaced. Uh, Boeing reports that it is halting 787 deliveries and that the F-18 Super Hornet fighter uh, is going to go out of production in late 2025. BAE Hensoldt and Rolls-Royce reported earnings as Saab posted large sales increases uh, in the wake of this tragic war. Joining us uh, on our roundtable to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rockenron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Guys, welcome back to the program. Uh, wouldn't be Sunday without you all. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, well said, Margaret. Wouldn't be a Sunday without it. I'm very glad to be here. Absolutely. Thanks very much indeed for having us, Margaret. Yeah, great to be on. Happy Sunday, Fargo. And indeed, special thanks to you all. I think, you know, it's a weekend and you guys always make time to join us. And for that, we're very appreciative, given that everybody has got very busy lives and you guys you guys are, are increasingly girdling the world or the, or the United Kingdom uh, for, for that matter. So I'm very glad that you're able to join us. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, guys, again, uh, welcome uh, back. It's great uh, to have you on. Ron, it was great seeing you uh, in uh, San Francisco. Uh, McKinsey uh, hosted a regional air mobility uh, summit uh, on uh, sort of the, the green and the electric uh, electrified part of that. And it was great uh, to see uh, Robin Rydell uh, and his team over there. They sponsored our trip over there as well as other journalists. And we had great uh, conversations and that coverage is going to be reflected uh, over the coming uh, coming weeks and months. Uh, Ron, start us off. Week on world markets uh, and how uh, the group uh, performed and what some of the broad drivers have been. Yeah, I'd say, you know, maybe start with the, the macro. Uh, probably the most important topic this week was interest rates and, and the market. We've seen interest rates you know, steadily start marching higher again. Uh, the 10-year treasury is almost uh, back to uh, 4%. It's just a, just a hair underneath it. Um, and, and that's on sort of a, a, a litany of uh, economic news that's been coming in that's suggesting that the economy and inflation is hotter than uh, most folks had wanted. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised as we move into the second half of the year uh, or you start, you know, uh, kind of, you know, looking at projections in the second half of the year into next year, that most of the banks start raising uh, what they think that you know the Fed rate is going to be, um, and that's really been the biggest debate on the market. Um, if you look at our group, um, largely uh, defense outperformed uh, in your commercial aerospace. The S and P was off about two and a half percent. Raytheon Technologies was off about one and a half. Lockheed was up a percent. Northrop was flat. Uh, L3 Harris was down about 2%. Uh, and then really of the big large cap names I follow, the the the, the one that was uh, the worst performer of the week was Boeing. Uh, we'll talk about that, I'm certain, uh, in a bit in a little more detail. But a lot of that had to do with uh, the 787 uh, news and, and, and some other things. But uh, it was a bumpy, bumpy week. Uh, and to, to be you know candid, I would expect that kind of going forward because you're just seeing this tug of war in the market between the market and the Fed and back and forth. And um, that's where we are. It is uh, certainly an interesting time. And we're going to get into a deeper discussion of the war uh, and its implications in aftermath in a moment. Sash, uh, walk us through uh, another uh, interesting uh, week. We had uh, BAE Systems Hensold as well as Rolls-Royce Report. Walk us through the week and what the key takeaways were and the key drivers and how they how the group performed against the broader market. Yeah, okay. So, um... Again, European aerospace and defense had a really, really good week. 
um, I said this last week and it was the same this week. The sector overall, you know, the uh, 20 odd stocks we cover were up 3%, um, uh, and that's about a percent and a half above the, uh, the market. Civil stocks, um, a, a smaller subset, up nearly 4%. Defense stocks up nearly 2.7%. Uh, so, really strong performance. Um, but this was driven by some very, very exceptional uh, individual stock performances. The standout stock performance last week was Rolls Royce. Um, Rolls-Royce shares have been about a pound and change uh, for the last six, nine months or so. Market has been waiting for the new CEO, Tufanel Gian Bilic, to uh, you know, basically get his, get his feet under the desk uh, and uh, you know, to, to present himself and present his view of Rolls-Royce to, um, uh, to the markets. And when he did, it went down really well. So what happened with their results? Number one, fantastic um, cash flow. Number two, they beat you know, they had a really good second half uh, for sales um, and the guidance in terms of cash flow for 2023 was also very, very strong. Rolls-Royce's Achilles heel has been it just doesn't generate very much cash. And that's on top of the fact that it doesn't really make very much money on its core programs most years. Um, and boy, the second half of last year was was better than expected. So Ergen Village is, you know, he's clearly going to do a a, a strategic review in slightly slower time. He's going to reveal that in the second half of this year. But the overall impression that the market got was um, Rolls-Royce is exiting what's been a really bad couple of years, um, faster and in better condition than, than people feared. Um, Eggenbilch has clearly got a mandate from the board to, uh, you know, to think some unthinkable things, not all unthinkable things. He's very, very clear that Civil aero engines and defence are core businesses. That's good, but you know Rolls Royce does stuff that it would like to do that it thinks is interesting, sexy. Civil nuclear reactors. Yeah, doesn't everybody want a bit of that? Not when they see the bill, they don't. And right. I think there's a real possibility that uh, that he will can that uh, when it comes to, to the strategic review, and the market would see that very well. So put that in perspective. The the, the um, civil stocks were up three point nine percent this week. But actually, if you strip up Rolls-Royce, which was up 23%, it went up a quarter this week. The civil stocks were actually just off. They were off about 40 basis points. And the sector overall um, went from being up 3% to being up 1.9%. So Rolls just dragged the whole sector up. And that was astonishing. But think about the other uh, really good performers. BA Systems um, had, a, had a, a fine week, but actually was up in line with the sector. Its results were lots of goods, but I think the market was a little bit disappointed by the, the guidance going forward. But the stock that did well on results was Hensolt. And Hensolt did well. This is the German defense electronics radar company. Hensolt did well because they are finally starting to see little bits of demand from or related to Ukraine coming through. And they said that they are now producing their, they've got a very big air defense radar, the TRML 4D. It's a, um, it's a long range, you know, 250, 300 kilometer surveillance radar. Um, very much for medium range air defense. And they've got to the stage where they can see that demand is so hot and they've already shipped four uh, models of this to Ukraine as part of uh, um, the RST air defense system. And they're probably going to ship another, you know, couple this quarter and several more this quarter. Demand is so hot, they're going to produce 30 of those off their own back. They're not going to wait for it for any government to order it. They're just going to start building them now because they know they can deliver them. And there's a theme coming out here that I think it's quite important for our listeners to recognize. Hensolt is the third company that I have spoken to uh, in the last three weeks, who's now said the market in Europe for radars is so hot, we're going to build them on spec. We're going to build them without orders because we know we can sell them. Talis is doing it for the Grandmaster um, uh, surface surveillance radar. They're selling those um, via, via France, clearly, to Ukraine, but other customers coming and buying them. And they just said, we're going to do them on a production line. So rather than handcrafting everyone for an individual customer, build them and they will come. And Saab are producing their giraffe air defense radars again. Um, uh, they, they, they are just building them because they know the demand is there. I've never seen a defense market where uh, the manufacturers were prepared to build without orders because they know that they know there is so much demand there. This is, you know, to my mind, unprecedented. And I think it's fascinating that it's the three big or three of the four big European radar companies that are seeing this sort of demand now. They know that lead, lead times are long and they know that it's worth them putting their own dollar in or their own 
you know, euros in because they're going to get paid royally for that through the end of 2023 into 24 into 2025. So that that really has been the, the remarkable theme for this week. Um, and, you know, just to finish off on the on the numbers, you know, Hensold up 6%, Saab up another, another 11%. Given that Saab was up 20% last week, Saab is now the best performer in the European uh, aerospace and defence sector on any, you know, on one week, one month, three months, 12 months. Uh, it really is seen as being at the leading edge of the, uh, uh, you know, the beneficiaries of the Ukraine war, even ahead of Rheinmetall. Um, again, you know, it, it, it feels to me like it's, you know, it's getting a bit out of oxygen at the moment, but, you know, tremendous performance. I want to um, have a broader conversation on how this war is changing uh, acquisition patterns, because what you said uh, about companies not waiting for the government investment is what a lot of the new generation of innovative uh, companies, whether they're Anduril or Palantir or any one of a number of other companies have been counting on, right? That we're going to make investment on what we think is the future of the market and buy our products uh, as opposed to necessarily going through a development cycle. But I want to park that uh, question for uh, a moment and ask you a follow-up. If Rolls-Royce gets out of the commercial nuclear business, how does it affect their uh, Royal Navy nuclear power plant business, right? I mean, there's always this sense that economies of scale work in this industry uh, and having you know, whereas if you're only making nuclear power plants for nuclear attack submarines or ballistic missile submarines, you're on problematic ground. Do you know, I think it affects it less than you think. Rolls-Royce makes nuclear power plants for nuclear submarines because the UK government pays it to do so. The UK government um, is uh, semi-detached about their civil nuclear business. Um, they don't really want to subsidize it too much. Um, you know, if if the if the economy of scale disappeared, and there is no economy of scale at the moment because they have no production work in civil nuclear, but you know, let, let's dream the dream of ten years time, and they they've got a civil nuclear business, and yeah, they would have an economy of scale, and the UK government would say, hey, well, you can give us our nuclear power plants a bit cheaper, um, but without that, the UK government know they're on the hook for for every submarine that's built and every reactor that's built, and they're they're fine with that. I think what they wouldn't want would be Rolls Royce overextending themselves financially so much on civil nuclear that it damaged the engineering resources for the defense nuclear business, or even, God forbid, the uh, military aero engine business. Um, and ultimately, it's all the same pounds that Rolls-Royce is spending. So right. uh, UK government wants Rolls to, to focus on what's in the, the national strategic interest. And civil nuclear, it's really hard to put it into that category. Uh, I would just say, uh, go the UK government is unbelievably myopic in uh, issues of industrial policy. So they may well be wrong. But that's that I believe is how they think. Um, and it's it's going to be interesting to see, obviously, where the AUKUS deal uh, puts us and what it means for BWXT, what it means for roles. Uh, in, indeed. Right. I mean, it looks like uh, at this point, uh, any of the more creative solutions might not be part of the mix. Um, we have discussed some of these solutions about a Japanese uh, Soryu with maybe a French uh, power plant, American combat system because I think this has to happen quickly. I think we're looking at a much longer term program that is going to be based either uh, on some something British, something American, perhaps uh, a hybrid, but it, but it is sounding an awful lot like an earlier, you know, um, the, the non uh, Virginia payload module uh, Virginia class uh, as, as opposed to anything else, uh, unless we're, we're looking at SSNX, which the Royal Navy is already looking at the successor um, to astute. So it's going to be interesting to see what uh, is going to be reported out on, on March the 15th. Richard, uh, big week for Boeing uh, and both commercial and defense news uh, on the uh, air, airplane side of things, right? 787 halt. Uh, we've talked about the problem plague nature of the program. Uh, F-18 has been a very good franchise uh, for uh, the company, one, uh, where, where the Navy has colluded with Congress, let's just be honest, to get airplanes because it, it wants them and it it's not particularly crazy about F-35s. Uh, I, I view this as sort of the latest effort to skosh a couple more uh, airplanes out, right? People start losing their jobs, guys. Just have late 2025 uh, in mind. The company saying it's looking to the future, even though, unfortunately, increasing, increasingly people are seeing, uh, you know, are, are questioning whether the company may be actually in, in a, um, unfortunately, a tailspin that is not particularly recoverable, whether the company has already transitioned into McDonnell Douglas territory, uh, unfortunately. So to give us your sense on the 787 one, it means on uh, the F-18 uh, as well. Uh, and and Ron and Sash kind of get your guys' uh, views on, on all of this as well. Go ahead. 
Yeah, much to discuss with Billing this week, for certain. Um, to start with the 787, we've all had to earn the distinction, if we didn't al- already know it, uh, between nonconformance and noncompliance. And, uh, you know, noncompliance, good news, it, it sounds a little less onerous and a little less, less risky, but of course, not welcome news. You know, I mean, the wide body market continues to be god awful, but actually, people do want some 787s. So, you know, if they can get their act together, hey, they could deliver some, but that's a serious issue. I mean, you know, if it weren't for all of the other execution issues that had plagued the company, plagued this program, plagued just you know, every other jetliner pretty much, then I don't think this would be noticed. It's just, you know, another data point of <laughs> what's going on here. Why can't they get it right? Um, I suspect it'll be sorted out in a couple of months. It's, you know, been, meanwhile, there's been some slowdown in uh, Dreamlifter shipments, but uh, not not huge, not certainly not the uh, the end of the line or the, the shell or the, you know, they haven't halt the halt of the line. So work is continuing, I guess my point is, and, and, and hopefully that'll get resolved pretty quickly. Um, you know, far bigger news, of course, on the Super Hornet. I tend to think there's something more to it. I, I know why you'd think that it's a, an effort to get more, but it, you know, they, they pulled out all stops in the FY23 budget. They went from zero to eight. That is not the making of a sustainable line, right? And with Germany, Finland, and of course, Canada all lost in the last 12 months, courtesy of Vladimir Putin, the best F-35 salesman ever, we've all decided, um, you know, it's, that's not coming back. The only hope is the Indian Navy, really, uh, 57 jets. That's been an outstanding requirement for what, I think, 18 years, something like that. And they're up again. It's unlikely that a decision will be made in time. Um, there's also Rafale that has a very good chance. Heck, even the Russians conceivably have a chance there. So nothing you can take to the bank. And aside from getting another badge of eight, maybe I don't think shutting the line is, we're talking about line shutting is going to be an issue. The only hope I'll hold out is that nobody knows what the hell is happening with the future of carrier aviation. You know, I mean, the Air Force, its future is simple. F-35A is an end gap. And they're unlike NATF back in the early 90s, it is very unlikely that they can do a navalized end gap. And then GAD is not going to happen. Um, and take you back to, we all it's remember- It's going to be FXX, shit. right? FXX. But the problem with FXX is that how long has it been since they've done a clean sheet design? Does YF-17, FA-18 count? It's been half a century. And the problem is that it's gotten harder since then because the Marines have defected. You know, with the creation of the Hornet, the Marines were very much part of it. They've removed themselves from that business case. You're talking Blue Water Navy only, maybe 300, maybe 400 jets. Um, Does that justify the kind of massive investment needed in a sixth generation fighter if they can't simply adapt an Air Force design? I, boy, the odds aren't looking good. Meanwhile, they don't seem to, they've only taken what? Uh, the Blue Water Navy, as distinct from the Marines, have only taken about 20 something F 35 Charlies and this whole time. <laughs> they appear to be lukewarm at best about that. MQ 25 grinding slowly with no word of any kind of combat adaptation. Uh, so, what does the future look like? Is it, oh God, you know, take you back to 91 when things fell apart with NATF and more pointedly with A 12. And of course, the F-14D line was dying in the background. The only way to secure the future of carrier aviation was to invent the Super Hornet. You know, this uh, Hornet reinvented 25% larger with new with new features. And, you know, ultimately it was a Hornet, right? Uh, only bigger and more capable. Could you rule that with, out? With only like, what, 15, 15% parts? You know what I mean? So right, that was right, a right, brilliant right, right. sales campaign. Right. Uh, on yeah. the part of the uh, Navy. Jim Stevenson, a wonderful book about the Naval Institute Press, uh, The Pentagon Paradox. Jim Stevenson wrote right. a, a book on it, which included the chapter, The Mercurial F-19 Wasp, which is what he calls it because, yeah, as you say, it only had a minimal parts count commonality and was really its own aircraft. Could that happen again with the reinvention? Uh, probably not. But at this point, look, you know, if they don't have something, then carrier aviation is very much at risk in the 2030s. Um, unless they do a massive re, re, you know, rebuild, slip, uh, block three, whatever, super hornet, which only gets them into the 2040s, right? And right. what happens after that? So I think there are big questions. Meanwhile, of course, everyone is looking and saying, okay, if Boeing doesn't get in yet, we can assume, we all made the assumption, I think, on this program 
that they're not going to be the winners of NGAD or haven't been the winners of Indeed. It's already been decided. Um, so do they have part of it? Uh, and if not, well, do they, if there is no FAXX, what is the future of Boeing St. Louis? They would argue, of course, combat adaptations of the T7, which of course is adorable. Um, because those are, you know, <laughs> I mean, they, they make the F-20 look kind of like a, you know, gussy macho fighter. Um, I, this is, you know, one of the bigger questions we face. It's not just carrier aviation. It's anything, any remaining shred of hope for McGair as a combat aircraft designer rests with this question. So I think there's a lot riding on this. I, I, I tend to think that the base case scenario is that this line doesn't need shut and this becomes if you count the Hornet and Super Hornet as the same, which is debatable, then this becomes the second aircraft production line to close combat aircraft production line since, uh, well, since 1991 when the F-14 line closed, then you had the F-22. Now this, combat line closures are rare, but unfortunately they do happen. Uh, in, 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 indeed, and again, I'm not entirely sure uh, this is a game over, right? Whenever you confront people with the prospect of thousands of jobs lost, especially in St. Louis, there, you know, I've always, you know, but but anyway, Ron, you spoke to the company. Uh, you're pretty convinced this is the end of the road for the F-18. Talk to us about the 787 as well as uh, the Super Hornet. And more broadly, you know, how does this play into the narrative and what the company has to do next? Because whatever it is the Navy buys will be through a competitive process Lockheed will be in that process. Northrop will be in that process. General Atomics might be in that process. And at the end of the day, Boeing might not have the ability to buy in the way that it bought into 46, T7, MQ25, right? Buy-in might not be a strategy anymore. On that point, I would argue buy-in was never a strategy because, you know, yeah, how can I say it? Winning programs where you lose money is not a a long-term strategy, right? And that doesn't work. Um, that being said, uh, to your question, um, yeah, I mean, it, Boeing just basically said what they said in you know their press release that yeah, this is you know this is it, right? And um, they're going to be doing other work there, and you know hopefully doing you know working on other programs uh, in uh, in St. Louis. That being said, you know I I worked in St. Louis a long time ago, um, and you know. For better or worse, probably for worse. I mean, the uh, uh, the engineering base there that can actually do design work on a tactical aircraft is far more limited than it ever ever was before. So, um, you know, what they do there um, to me remains a bit unclear. Um, so, so we'll see. Um, I guess I, I tend to fall into um, you know Richard's camp on this, but you, you never know. I mean, they could be trying to. Uh, get you know get some funding in the next budget or so on and so forth but you know here we are i mean look at the f-15 f-15 still around so um, if there's a way to breathe life back into this program um, it also kind of makes me sad i mean it's one of the you know heritage mcdonald douglas um i guess f-17 northward programs right um so it'd be sad to see it go away but um there we are um on 787 per richard's comments i agree with him completely i mean this does seem like something that is you know, work throughable, um, maybe more of a you know paperwork glitch than, than anything else. But that being said, uh, and you know, I think you saw this reflected in the share price. It just shakes people's confidence. And oh no, here's another thing that that messed up. You know, why why can't they get this right? Um, so um, there you have it. Um, you know, hopefully it's, it's nothing more than that. But in the end, what's um, the it, what's the specific? Well, and what and, and just explain to the audience, right? What's the specific issue? this time um, in, in terms of the why? Yeah, so there was, um, if you remember, go back about a year ago, maybe it was a little more, um, uh, an issue with the pressure bulkhead in the in the forward fuselage. Uh, right. And my understanding of this is, and, and granted it's, you know, it's not that, you know, my understanding isn't you know, that, that detailed, but there were some calculations and things that were filed with the FAA on that issue when it was resolved that weren't, submitted right or the FAA didn't agree with the analysis or something so it's it's one of those things where I think they have to redo the analysis and resubmit the paperwork to the FAA and the FAA has to sign off on it um, you know I was told point blank by the company it's not a safety of flight issue that's always good of course um, 
So we'll see. Uh, from an investor perspective, however, uh, management already came out and said, hey, you know what? That number of 787s that we thought we were going to deliver in 2023, it's probably going to be less than that. And that was before this. Right. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of back to that slippery slope of we put out a target of, of X and then in the end, and when it's all said and done, it's X minus Delta. And, you know, hopefully that Delta is not very big. Um, if you look at, you know, to be fair, both Boeing and Airbus last year, that Delta was actually a pretty big number. Um, so you know, hopefully that's not the case again this year. But I think that's the fear with investors because that ultimately is what drives why everybody, you know, looks at Boeing around, you know, the recovery in the cycle and free cash flow and so right. on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, you know, um, 2022 was the lost year for Airbus. They started the year with one with, um, you know, guidance at X. By the time they got through 2022, guidance was back to where it was at the beginning, you know, the previous year. And they're guiding now in 2023 to get to the same number they thought they would get to this time a year ago. Uh, it's it, uh, Richard made this point a couple of weeks ago. This is, you know, when you strip out all the funnies and everything, this is a really weak recovery. The manufacturers are not able to deliver the recovery that they're promising. Sash, I'm going to come to you uh, in just a moment, but a quick reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Canvas Ships, hosted by Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own uh, JJ uh, Gertler. Um, Sash, is there any more you wanted to say uh, about you know the Dreamliner uh, and and sort of Boeing more generally before we shift uh, to the conversation about how this war uh, has changed everything and how we need to start looking at things long term? I, I just want to pick up on Richard's comment about um, the. The, net, the wide body market being pretty weak, you know, possibly with the exception of 787. Um, I, I, Airbus have been saying for a year now, and I've only started believing them in about the last four or five months, that the wide body market is ticking up. And you, you'll remember um, they actually started, you know, they, they, they had a pretty good year for wide bodies last year. They, um, they actually beat up our forecast for the A330. And, you know, who, who worries about the A330? Well, I do when they when you beat your forecast by sort of 15, 20 percent in terms of deliveries. Uh, where do those come from? But also, you know, they, they started the year with some pretty good A350 orders. They they're pushing the line that the wide body market is starting to recover. And yeah, 2023 will be a really interesting test of that. But, you know, you've got Air India. They they ordered a ton of everybody's. Um, they'll take delivery of some of those. Um, Qatar clearly came back into the market for A350s, having cancelled them or had them all cancelled in a, in a bit of a fit or not. So, you know, the wide body market from an Airbus point of view has actually been the uh, almost the untold story. It's been the, the bit that has turned around from being loss making at the trough, trough to being just about profitable, maybe even a bit better than that. It could yet could yet surprise us on the upside. Richard and Ron, anything you guys want to add to that? Yeah, if I may, I mean, I, I think it's possible. It's just that, the, frankly, the big an anecdote that would give you any hope for the wide body market coming back is here in India. And that sure looks like, you know, a, a company trying to recreate itself and then go head to head with the three most powerful wide body behemoths on the planet, the three Gulf carriers. So I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready right. to declare it's an uptick yet. But also remember, you know, the wide body market effectively collapsed in 2020, 2021. So you're going to see, you know, some kind of bounce upward, dead cat or otherwise. So uh, of course, there's some kind of uptick, but it's, we're just a long, long way from getting back to the peak. And, and I guess the, what I would add is uh, if you look at the wide body market, um, it was in decline before the pandemic, right? That's part of the reason it got hit so hard. Um, if you looked at uh, lease rates for you know, A330s, um, A350s, 787s, um, 777s, uh, they all they all were sliding um, before the pandemic, right? So you sort of had the cyclical downturn already already happening. And you can debate why. I mean, we're too many aircraft built, so on and so forth. But and then the pandemic just made it worse. Um, that being said, uh, there is demand for 787s, that's clear. Um, it's less clear where demand lies on 777s uh, outside of the freighter model and when the 777X will actually go into service, you know, is it 2025, 2026, that kind of thing. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens. I ultimately do believe there will be demand for that aircraft, um, but it's probably second half of this decade. 
Um, let's uh, turn uh, to the war uh, that's going into its second uh, year. President Biden made an extraordinary visit to Ukraine. Uh, we found out about that uh, last uh, on, on Monday, right after uh, we had uh, recorded. Uh, Putin blamed uh, the West uh, for the war, a theme that's been echoed by China, along with a vast number of other nations around the world, uh, even in NATO who are, uh, that are helping uh, Moscow, like Hungary. Uh, it said the war backfired on Russia, but it's not abundantly clear that that's uh, necessarily the case. Um, uh, it's helping Putin reshape Russia into his twisted vision. It's brought together a formidable coalition of nations that include China, uh, the so-called global south that includes India and other nations uh, that um, you know will continue to trade uh, with uh, with Russia. Uh, NATO, however, has been revitalized, right? We're looking at a lot more joint programs, joint munitions, um, maritime patrol aircraft. I mean, you know, there's the, the Defense Innovation Accelerator of the North Atlantic, Diana, that, that's been launched. I'm sort of curious to get your views. And Sash, why don't you start us off sort of on the sort of the, the, the chain? Because there is this criticism that everybody is still moving way too slowly. Um, we're too slow in authorizing arms uh, shipments. We're way too slow in uh, building up weapon stocks. And the poor, you know, we're willing to fight to the last Ukrainian, but we're not really giving them the tools in order to do it, which is what makes me cynical. On the one hand, we're doing unprecedented things. On the other hand, we're not really doing them as, as fast enough. What, is, what does this tell us about, you know, where, where you know, what, what's been accomplished, but then actually what's next? Because the hardest stuff, I think, is to come and folks are sort of congratulating ourselves because last year we sent a lot of javelins and HIMARS, you know, or, hey, we approve tanks. The poor guys are not going to see those tanks for months yet, right? And they need well, a yeah, huge amount I mean, of tools that they might not be able to get their hands on, especially if the Chinese get involved in this uh, as, as they have been really through third parties. And I want to get to that in a minute, but go ahead. Look, the Ukrainians aren't going to see M1s for months. That is to the shame of the United States. And it would suggest that the M1 is a ferociously difficult tank to, um, uh, to you know, to train on or strip out. They got their first Leopard tanks this week. Um, is that going to be enough to turn the tide? I very much doubt it, unfortunately. But um, I mean, our, our thesis at Agents Partners is that actually increasingly we don't listen to what politicians say anymore, because whatever politicians are saying about what uh, individual countries will or won't export, and generally it's we won't export X, uh, to, to, to Ukraine, they will have changed their mind within a month. And I think the the U-turn um, OODA loop, uh, for want of a better term, is speeding up rather than slowing down. Think of how long it took for um, uh, major deliveries of indirect fire, high miles and so forth. That was that took several months before we got around to it. The whole debate about main battle tanks was three, four months um, from, uh, before anybody, actually it was probably more like six months before anybody was prepared to do it. Now, the only question is how many, how fast? And individual countries are, you know, changing their mind and delivering a few more here and a few more there. And I admit it's a few and it's really depressing, but you know, it's, it's taking days rather than weeks. The debate on fighter aircraft has speeded up astonishingly. It was no two months ago, and now it's when and what type. That I think is, I, I, I take quite a lot of heart from that. Objectively, take a step back, stuff is being delivered too late. It's being delivered about half a battle late for everything that you, the Ukrainians want. And I think that that is, a, that is going to be the major problem for the war this, uh, this spring and summer. Um, but behind that, we are seeing the um, production lines for the key equipments. And you know, for, uh, for want of air power and I, I, I regret Ukraine will never have air power they'll never have the ability to deliver air priority and to deliver a a meaningful military airstrike over a sustained period of time which is a, as good a workable de definition of air power as you get they'll never have that so this is going to be a an indirect fire and armor war and those are the ones that cost the most lives um, but it, I think it's possible that provided they can hold the line this year, and I think this is going to be a long war, you know, nine, 12, 15 months time, the scale of ammunition that the West is providing and the scale of weapon systems that the West is providing and the scale of training will be enough to start to turn the, uh, to, uh, turn the tables. Um, so I, I think the speed of decision making has improved 
dramatically. But it's always frustrating. And that's, you know, that's the problem of democracies. Richard, I want to go to you and kind of get your uh, sense uh, on this Uh, and, and also get your sense on how the United States deters China from getting involved in this uh, as well, right? I mean, our action was to sort of, we'll assemble the world, show China, don't miscalculate on Taiwan. It's not abundantly clear that we're actually doing that. And I think the Chinese may be looking at this and saying, hey, maybe I can get away with this after all. Um, You know, it is widely said that the Chinese are actually circumventing embargoes and sanctions and everything else by going through third parties, right? whether it's the Kremlin's money making it, you know, to, to Marine Le Pen through Budapest or whether it's, you know, Pakistan and Tajikistan and a number of other countries buying American consumer, uh, you know, appliances to discard and send the electronics to Russia. Right. I mean, there's 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 a robust market already going before the Chinese say, hey, we're going to supply ammunition uh, and, and, and the like. I'm, I'm sort of curious, um, you know, where we've come but then sort of where we're going and whether we're fully prepared for what that will uh, take. And, and Sash, maybe get your sense, right? How, how do you keep the Chinese uh, from, from helping? Because it would appear to me that any sort of vestige of leverage may be evaporating maybe quick, more quickly. And I don't know whether or not I'm just in a glum mood. But I don't know. Go, go ahead. Richard. Yeah, sure. You know, a glass half empty, glass half full. Let's uh, let's have a quick look at both. But uh, first, I'd like to give uh, you know full uh, credit to uh, to Sash there for using the term uh, uh, weapons export OODA loop. I think that was exactly the the right way to describe it. And uh, <laughs> on 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 that note, you know, let's look at the the case against um, optimism, which is that boy, it's very clear that these have been some mightily leaky sanctions. You know, whether it's in the semiconductors, there was that ridiculous story about breast pump exports to Turkey going way up because apparently, for some reason, electronic breast pumps have lots of microchips in them. Who knew? Uh, There's all this stuff that's happened. Um, And obviously, weapons production has not ground to a halt. Um, Commercial aircraft, I find a fascinating story because all of us, I think, not to hold us accountable here, but we all thought it would have fallen off a cliff months ago. And instead, the level of flight activity is still going pretty strong, which means they found all kinds of ways of getting spare parts beyond just cannibalization. That's clearly part of it. But, you know, there's a lot more going on by way of smuggling and having aircraft service, whether it's in the UAE or China or whatever else. Um, This is all very depressing. The fact that not only have you got a big chunk of the world allying itself with a, a absolutely brutal and rapacious war, and and of course the you know the terrible regime behind it, but that we appear to have such serious problems with enforcement, and of course any number of folks in the West who are uh, fully fine with that, uh, as even in the U.S., which is bizarre and depressing. Now, last half full, right. um, I think we're learning. Right. I mean, we're we must be looking people in the U.S. government, the U.K. government and other allied governments must be looking at cash streams at export streams. You know, there's that wonderful um, International Trade Commission database that shows exports line by line, country by country, up to six digit export codes. I would expect there are people looking very closely at what's going where. Um, and we're going to learn from what happened. Uh, as, as those patterns become clear. Now, the related issue, what leverage do we have? I would argue we've got a lot of leverage. I mean, you know, China, sure, they do some things very well. Can they build a decent semiconductor? No, they cannot. Uh, we've had this conversation before, but we killed the MA700 turboprop just to show we could. And you know what? I think the next step, we've had this conversation before, is to kill another one of their aircraft saying, you guys aren't really good global players. Now, the Chinese are not absolutely in lockstep with Russia. You know, and I, I think we have to use this leverage carefully rather than, you know, push them into that. But on the other hand, we have got to be forceful. You know, I mean, obviously there are red lines. And the Chinese have always been pretty good. The PRC, I should say, the regime has been pretty good about skirting that middle ground, you know, about being observer status in in treaties like the WTO agreement on trade and commercial aircraft, but not actually full signatories. They're really good 
at prevaricating and just sort of walking that line. So we've got to be prepared to enforce it. And I think we do have a fair amount of leverage in terms of what we approve for exports. Ron, anything you want to add to how this uh, debate uh, is evolving? And, and you know, as you, as you look forward, what does this mean uh, for uh, the industry, right? I mean, we talk about more collaborative programs. There looks like there's going to be some investment. Obviously, we won't know that uh, for uh, a couple of weeks, right? Uh, or rather, I should say in about a week, right? March 9 is when the budget uh, is supposed to be out. Um, you know, what's, what's, what's your sense as you look forward about what all of this means and what all of this means uh, for trade, right? I mean, Sash, you, you had pointed out uh, when we were having this conversation, the United States goes in sanctions, right? As, as, as uh, you know, you, you kill the 919 and, you know, do, do a couple of other things, um, you know, as, as you said, Richard, just because you can. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you um, see this, Ron? Right. And not to get to speak for the bank, but I mean, sort of like, right. I mean, the institution looks at long term risk going forward. Right. I mean, what's sort of the consensus view on on what this looks like, say, in another year, in another two years, for example? Yeah. I mean, if you if you, you know, pull down the aperture and you just look at our universe, um, there's, uh, I think, a, you know, a whole litany of you know, potential um, impacts. Right. So commercial aerospace. Uh, Richard has talked about this, I think, you know, very articulately before, you know, do we see this, you know, splitting of uh, the universe, you know, sort of the, the, that which is influenced by China and, and that which is not, and then what implications does that have? And, you know, as, as Richard said, um, does that mean that 919 goes away because a lot of the technology in the 919 is actually purchased from the usual suspects and the non-Chinese influenced supply chain? So, so we'll see. What's it mean for Boeing sales in China, right? Um, you know, the Chinese market was long held up as this you know, big growth driver for the industry and big important market for Boeing. I mean, heck, it was a, a third of the market for 737 Maxes. You know, what what happens there, um, and, and what what does that mean? And and I think you know it's 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 more subtle than you know if, if Boeing's not selling airplanes in China, then say Airbus is, and then that might mean that Airbus isn't selling airplanes someplace else where Boeing could sell airplanes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, there's a little bit of a, you know, that right. game where you're moving the numbers around. Um, so, so we'll see what that means. And then, and then on the defense side, you know, with both what's going on in Asia PAC uh, and in Europe, um, you know, said respectfully to, you know, the, the NATO group of countries, not including the U S but maybe even you throw the U S in this pile, um, you know, the investment in the defense industrial base, you know, post cold war, isn't where probably it needed to be. Um, you know, on, on the U.S. footprint, you're seeing that for sure in the shipyards, right? I mean, you ask anybody in the Navy, they wouldn't want to buy three Virginia-class submarines a year right now, but we just don't have the industrial base to do that. Why? Because we didn't invest in it. Then it's just that much worse in Europe. So what it probably means on the European front is we will see more foreign sales from U.S. companies um, in, into Europe just because their industrial base has to be reinvested in, which, you know, hopefully it will. Um, we'll see, but I, mean, it's, you, you, I would imagine going forward, if you look out over the next five to ten years, the piece of um, foreign sales that U.S. companies do um, will just be greater, uh, and there'll be more exports into the Asia Pac region. Um, so, you know, I think I think that's where you know where we are. Um, I, I, I would point out, right? I mean, even some criticism within Germany, right? There was the Titan vendor, the promise, uh, right? I mean, it, it happened, um, what, tomorrow, right? A year ago tomorrow, um, that uh, Germany would spend 100 billion euros more, increase the defense budget. And we've, we've still not seen Germany doing the kinds of things uh, that Germany needs to do, even if German industry, for example, Rheinmetall, uh, has, has responded with some alacrity to become sort of a, a more important supplier. Uh, Sash, you had your hand up, and Ron, I have one follow-up question uh, that Richard want, might want to take a bite on uh, by it as well. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, to, 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 be, um, to be fair to Germany, which is not always a position I'm prepared to take, um, but, you know, they have, have ordered the F-35 <laughs> since then. Um, you know, that was right. an enormous move of, 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 of itself. Um, let's go back to China for a second. I think we underestimate the impact that the US deciding not to allow export of aero engines to China would have on the country and its domestic air, uh, domestic airline industry and its uh, aerospace industry. 
Um, the loss of face, I mean, China has invested broadly 30 billion dollars, but it may well be 50 billion dollars in uh, the C919. It's, it's a classic start of industry uh, investment where you have to build the whole of the industry from scratch and you get a handful of astonishingly expensive prototypes. Um, uh, but they've done it. They've got the 919 there. The 919 flies by the grace of President Biden, ultimately, because it flies with a, a, a CFM engine. That CFM engine comes from General Electric. So the, the US can shut the program down. And if they shut the program down, they shut the Chinese aerospace industry down this decade. It's more severe than it sounds because once you do that, the next stage is then say, and by the way, we won't allow spare parts for uh, US supplied engines either, in which case you shut Chinese airlines down over a period of time. Now, you know, as, as Russia is showing, it takes time, but the Chinese industry is so big that it will consume the supply of spares way faster. And also China is much more sensitive to the quality problems if they go and try to, you know, reverse engineer spare parts themselves and, and then have mishaps. You know, that that re rebounds on the Chinese uh, Communist Party very, very quickly indeed. So this is an astonishingly um, powerful sanction, but it has to be used very, very carefully. Um, and I think the interesting point about that, you know, Richard made about the, uh, the MA700, the problem with the MA700 ultimately is that nobody noticed and therefore nobody cared. C919 or even the ARG21, which after all is the only program they have in, in what approximates to series production. You do that and you know, a lot of people notice very, very quickly. So I think that is, that, that's the sanction that sends a very, very powerful message. I'm, I'm sort of less worried about semiconductors in many respects. They're, they're gonna leak through anyway. Aero engines don't leak. That's what's so fascinating about them. Chinese have had CFM 56s for 25 years. They still can't build one. Go figure. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, very interesting. We've got to wrap this up because we can continue uh, part of this discussion next week. But do you do you guys think, right? I mean, at the time, Andrill and Palantir and all of these companies were coming up and saying, hey, look, we're going to invest our own uh, skin in the game. We're going to develop products. We're going to bring them to DOD and DOD is going to buy them. Historically, that hasn't worked. But this this war appears to be a boon for those, uh, you know, earlier in the program, as you said, uh, Sash, right? Companies are starting to invest because they see a market. Um, is is this uh, maybe Ron and then and then Richard real quick because we only have about two minutes left? Is this does this war change that dynamic where people who've got better mousetraps, the government is going to buy your better mousetrap if you bring it a better mousetrap and you can scale that mousetrap and produce as many as the department or Ukraine or Britain or France or Germany needs. Uh, ultimately, do, do you think it changes anything, Ron? And then, and then, uh, Richard, maybe you can wrap us up, or vice versa, whoever wants to start off. It, it would be nice if it did, but I'm not confident that it will. Um, I would say this: um, if you look at some of the products, say that Palantir offers, it's a software product. That software might have scalability, you know, from both in you know government markets and commercial markets. If you look at Palantir's last quarter. Um, they had stronger growth in their commercial business. Um, you know, for better or for worse, historically, when you build a mousetrap on your own and you try to sell it to the government, it just hasn't been a very successful strategy. Uh, and, and, and as you know, I mean, a lot of that just has to do with the how, how obtuse the, the budgeting process is and getting things into the budget and so on and so forth, crossing that valley of death, that they call it, you know, for kind of the DARPA type program. Um, you know, so on one hand, I wish it would. However, I'm not confident that it will. Richard, last last word. Yeah, thanks. Of course, I agree with Ron. I mean, he speaks as a, you know the person who you know is closest to the 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 sources of capital. But of course, if that's uh, that's how they think, I'm sure he's got it right. And the only thing I'd add, however, is what you do have is countries willing to create national capabilities first and foremost for their own operational and, and future development sovereignty and technology roadmaps. Uh, but it's pretty clear that when they invest in the future, it pays rewards. South Korea is absolutely, uh, you know, the, the front and center uh, 
you know, example of that. I think other countries are going to be emboldened and say, you know, create your own industry and create additional bandwidth for future, you know, requirements. Uh, and, you know, that I think is something you're seeing in Australia, you're seeing it, I think, in Japan, and uh, certainly others too. And and you guys don't think, uh, very briefly, very briefly, you don't think that the conjoined uh, Chinese-Russian industry combined with Turkey could be able to produce competitive aerospace products as a counterweight to Airbus, Boeing, and the like? I'm, I'm just asking the question. You know, this is a knowledge-based industry. And in countries where the free flow of information is not legal <laughs> and where people are you know, not allowed to lead the kind of lives they want and indeed encouraged to flee if they've got you know, an interest in, in a more open society, that's, that's really disastrous. You know, Turkey perhaps uh, might be the closest, but oh boy, I mean, Erdogan is not doing well. They're, these are much bigger issues. You've got, you know, high levels of inflation, diminishing levels of freedom. It might be the closest thing to a functional society where technocrats might feel okay, but it, it's hardly something. I, I think everyone else has, you know, they're working on their careers in, in aerospace or some other part of the knowledge-based economy. And the really super good ones are looking at uh, opportunities for exit visas. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm just going to finish. In answer to your question, you know, you can China plus Russia plus Turkey produce something competitive to Boeing and Airbus, uh, not in our lifetimes. I'm planning to live out multiple, multiple decades. I just don't see it. I've been a bull of the Chinese aerospace industry, and I've been, it's, been a, it's been a very salutary learning experience for me. Indeed. Uh, Ron, any, any last point before we part? Yeah, I mean, I, I fall in the camp with both uh, Sasha and, and Richard. I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to tie that all together. I mean, it's difficult enough for uh, you know, countries where you do have that free flow of information and so on and so forth to make it work, let alone where you don't. And Ron, uh, really quickly, uh, you spoke at the McKinsey event uh, that was uh, sponsored by uh, Robin Rydell. Uh, give us a real quick sense on what the key takeaways were, because uh, he had a terrific briefing for reporters and some great conversations uh, with a lot of really uh, innovative uh, companies, you know, whether it was aviation, uh, you know, Dovetail and, and many, many others. Kind of give us give us your sense. Yeah, the real, the real focus of the event um, was, uh, and it, it, uh, honestly, it grew out of a, a conversation I had with Robin a couple of years ago when we were talking about urban air mobility. And, you know, the, the sense was um, urban air mobility really is missing the target that if you're going to deploy uh, a new generation of aircraft that potentially could be lower cost and potentially have less environmental impact, uh, you really want to do that in the regional market, in sort of the true regional market, the regional market that was around um, post-deregulation before it sort of withered away to what it is today, uh, because you have literally thousands of airports and you have local governments that would probably support airport jobs and so on and so forth. You're not focusing on developing this, you know, this whole new infrastructure and new rules to operate aircraft, and you're not focusing on needing autumn, you know, autonomy and so on and so forth. You're just you know, propelling airplanes with a different source, and you got to do it for you know routes that are probably 300 you know miles or less, and you can probably do that with uh, all the requirements you need, um, so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I think it was you know bang on. So that you know, I think really one of the biggest takeaways there was you know really what we should be looking at is regional aviation, not urban air mobility. Um, one and then two. I mean, there were really some you know interesting technologies and proposals and and so on and so forth there. So. Uh, that's that's what I would say. A fascinating uh, series uh, of conversations, uh, uh, and we hope to bring them to you, uh, our audience, uh, over uh, the coming coming weeks and months because it was a lot of uh, great food for thought. And Robin's going to be on soon as well. Guys, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great day, great uh, week, uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Vago. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thank you.